You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. It might seem like we've been in Genesis for a while, and there's some truth to that. But we are up to page 19 already in our Bibles, so progress. Uh, we're going to be reading 1 through 24 today. Uh, next time, I'm going to have a start back in verse 19, so we'll sort of read some of uh, those verses today and again next week. Uh, but I thought for the purpose of what we're going to be talking about today, reading through verse 24 would be helpful for us. Let's stand for the scripture reading for our sermon today. Hear the word of the Lord. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keterah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dinan. The sons of Dinan were Ashram and Ledishim. And the Lumen, the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephra, Hanak, Abiah, and Eldaah. All these are children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. While he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Emer, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 130 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old, and he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Adon Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? But she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Amen. So then we come to the end of Abraham's earthly sojourn. 
verse 7 summarizes his life, noting that he lived a good and long life to the age of 175 years. He then died, says he was gathered to his people, surely a reminder that there is life beyond our physical life on this earth. And Abraham is laid to rest in the same cave of Machpelah, where his wife Sarah was buried. Like Sarah, Abraham also died in faith, not yet having received the promises God had given him, but greeting them from afar. Like Sarah, his burial in that cave there in the Promised Land was a continued expression of his faith in those promises. The details of those promises included that a place that God would give him would be in that land of Canaan where the cave was, and that the people would be through Abraham and Sarah, namely Isaac, through Isaac. That people through that era and that place there in the land of Canaan. Abraham in his long-blessed life began to witness God bringing about those promises. Right? He began to see them. Not in the full. He began to see them by Isaac's birth. He began to see them by taking a little bit of ownership in the promised land, like that, that well at Beersheba and this tomb at Machpelah. But much of Abraham's life was one of waiting. Waiting in faith, waiting for God to bring what was promised. Knowing even that it wouldn't ultimately come in his lifetime. That it would only be after his death. Remember Genesis 15, they had a conversation about that. God went through some of the timeline with Abraham then. As we reflect on Abraham's death here for a moment. We remember and know and recognize Abraham's life was not perfect. But he did, by God's grace, continue in the faith. He was able to see the beginnings of God's promises be realized. And this passage then marks the culmination of a rather long section in Genesis. That uh, section began all the way back in Genesis 11, verse 27, with the words, these are the generations of Terah, Terah who fathered Abram. You might remember Genesis has those structure markers through the book when it says these are the generations that marks a new section. And they're not all the same length. Abraham's section started there in Genesis 11 and went through here pretty long. So as we conclude our time with Abraham, this passage gets us to think about his legacy. It especially gets us to think about the promises of a people and a place that God gave to the Abrahamic, or gave to Abraham through the covenant, right? The what we call the Abrahamic covenant. But remember, when we mention those promises, those two big promises, he promises a people and a place. That's often how we summarize it, right? I, I do like to point out at various points, even though those are the two main promises. There's this little additional detail that God would bring breath blessing to all the nations through Abraham's seed. So remember that. And we also remember that another promise that God gave Abraham, that not only would Isaac become a great nation, 
but that nations, plural, would come from Abraham. And here we see some of that beginning to unfold as well. With uh, Ishmael and these other sons of Keter, particularly what I have in mind here. Well, as we then notice that Abraham has this seed named Isaac, but these other sons over here, Ishmael and these other sons of Keturah, we have a chance to do a little bit of contrasting between Isaac and that seed and that line and the other sons. And as we start to do that, we realize this brings to our attention the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. I mentioned that when we read Romans 9. And the doctrine of election is one of the more difficult doctrines in the Bible. I say it's one of the more difficult doctrines in the Bible. That does not mean it is an unknowable doctrine. Sometimes, uh, God bless certain pastors, will, will come up and say, the Bible teaches it, but we don't really understand it. And so we, we just have to accept it as a mystery. And they sort of say very little about it. Uh, but actually, the Bible says quite a bit about it. And it's not just in Romans 9. In fact, you see a lot developed right here and having begun to be developed in this whole area of Genesis. So some doctrines in the Bible are very simple doctrines, very easy to understand. Think of like, for example, the basic gospel message. That's something that hopefully even the youngest of faith can explain a basic gospel message of, of Christ. But there are some doctrines that are more difficult. And the more difficult ones tend to have nuance, nuance, and the nuance, getting the nuance right is what sort of keeps you on track versus going off the rails. And so I want us to consider some of the nuance today. I think maybe we don't normally get, when we're just talking about the doctrine in a big picture, have a chance to have a little bit of the nuance understood today. Well, let's in our first point begin with some background, uh, specifically a little background and overview to the doctrine of election. So sort of stepping back from this passage, imagine for a moment we're in a little systematic theology class, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of an overview of election. So we know what we're talking about as we didn't go back to the text. Uh, when we're talking about election, by the way, there's a corollary, reprobation, which we'll mention a little bit about that too. Election and reprobation for the opposite. Uh, when we're talking about election reprobation, we're ultimately really talking about something that applies to individual people. The basic idea is that God has predestined from before the foundation of the world whom he would save and whom he would lead to their sin. That's found in Ephesians 1 verse 4. The elect, we would call the elect, the elect are those God is predestined to intervene in their sinful rebellion and effectually call them to himself so that at some point in due time in their life they realize their sin, they realize their condemnation, and they see Christ as offered the gospel. They have been given eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand. They realize what they need. They realize what's offered in Jesus grace working in their hearts by the intervention, and they come, they believe, and they're saved from that coming judgment. It's a work of God intervening. It's a massive intervention 
It's supernatural. But in contrast, you have the reprobate. These are individuals that God is predestined to leave to their sinful rebellion. The result is that they will ultimately receive God's terrible wrath on the coming day of judgment. So the elect will ultimately enjoy a blessed eternal life in the age to come. The reprobate will ultimately experience the curse of hell in the afterlife. We should remember at this point, the elect in themselves, they were not more worthy than the reprobate. The elect and the reprobate have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Divine election to save the elect is about God's grace. It's about God's mercy. God shows grace and mercy to save the elect. If the elect were somehow worthy of such, then that wouldn't be grace and mercy. They wouldn't even need to be saved. They would just earn it, right? The election of salvation is not about the elect doing something to save themselves. It's about an active intervention by God through his spirit at some point in their lives to work new birth in that elect person's heart. We call that being born again. Born again is not something you do to be born again. It's something God does to you to make you be born again. And that's why you turn in to believe in Jesus. We also call that regeneration. But for the reprobate, there's a little bit of nuance here as well. For the reprobate, I mentioned for the elect, God has to do an active intervention. God doesn't need to do that for the reprobate. What do I mean? God doesn't have to go in and actively intervene to make them wicked. They already are wicked. All humans fell in Adam. And apart from being born again, we are born in a state of total depravity. So when it comes to reprobation, God doesn't have to do something to make them worthy of hell or to do something to make them evil. They're born fallen creatures. And so we call this fancy word preterition. Preterition. Basically that God passes over them. Passes over them, leads them to their sin and the outcome of hell and judgment. Now, Romans 9 that we read gives us a little bit of added nuance here. And I thought it's especially helpful because it mentions some of the people and even verses from our chapter today. It references, for example, in Romans 9, verse 7, Isaac versus Ishmael. It points out that Isaac, not Ishmael, was predestined by God to be the chosen one that fulfilled God's covenant promises to Abraham. And then it goes on, Romans 9 goes to the next generation and references how God chose Jacob over Esau, even though Jacob was the younger of the two. And Romans 9 develops that idea that God had predestined a chosen people for himself and that he formed this group from Abraham, then through Isaac, then through Jacob, whom he later renames to Israel and then through the 12 tribes of Israel. Romans 9 then 
gives us two more intriguing ideas, two more nuances here. Romans 9 tells us that not all Israel are truly Israel. Meaning, there are some born through that genealogical line of Abraham, through Isaac, through, through Jacob, and on, that are not actually predestined unto salvation. They're genealogically descended through that line, but they're not individually predestined unto salvation. Romans 9 tells us that at the beginning. They are outwardly part of Israel. They're part of the group externally, but aren't truly part of God's saved elect. That's one nuance. That helps us to see the difference between, between the individual and the group. But then there's another nuance. Romans 9 says there are people from other nations that God would graft into Israel. So you got this chosen line. And there are some who are outside of that, that God would bring into that chosen line. Into this group that we call Israel, this group that as a group, externally speaking, we refer to that group as the elect people of God. But of course, we're talking now about the true Israel, which the church is today. The true Israel. In everything that the Bible means when it talks that way. And so again, you can recognize the difference between individual salvation, and therefore predestination election, and the idea of a group, a group that we refer to as the chosen of God, even though there can be people in that group that aren't really part of the chosen of God, and people outside the group that have not yet been brought into it. That are part of the chosen people of God. And if this sounds at all very similar to the distinction we use another time in, in our doctrine class called the visible church versus the invisible church, you've been paying attention. Then. That's basically what we're talking about. The visible church, we're a congregation in the visible church. The visible church is what we see outwardly, right? The visible church receives members, removes members. We administer communion to people who are members in the church, right? But it's a mixed body. There can be people in the church that aren't really saved. We might even give them communion. If we knew that they weren't, we wouldn't give them communion. But see, we don't know. That's why there's this idea of the invisible church. And the invisible church is, is ultimately made up of only those who are truly the elect of God. And in glory, it's that invisible church that will be there, present, when we're perfected. So I know that's a little bit of a background. I hope, hope it's going to be helpful as we dig into today's passage more. Let's return and look more specifically at these verses. We learn here about Abraham marrying Keterah. And by the way, when we see that he is marrying her, we should, given all of the data, appreciate that she's technically considered a concubine of Abraham. She doesn't have the same legal status as a wife as, say, Sarah. And and there is a sense in which, of course, even a concubine is a wife in light of their physical union and relationship. Sometimes we see scripture, therefore, use both terms, just like Hagar is, Hagar is mentioned as a wife at one point, but there's clearly a distinction between her and Sarah. 
And um, we know that from the genealogical record of 1 Chronicles 132, where it mentions Keter and describes Keter as a concubine. But even here in verse 6, it references concubines, and, and probably would understand that Keterah would be referenced in there. And so he has these several sons of Keterah. But then we come to verses 5 and 6, and we see that Abraham treated these sons differently than how he treated Isaac. He gives an inheritance to Isaac. He does not give an inheritance to these other sons. He gives them gifts, but he ultimately sends them away to relocate to the east. Why does Abraham do that? Why does he favor Isaac like that? Normally at this time, some, someone's inheritance would be divided up among his sons equally, with one exception, that the firstborn would get a double share. That's the birthright that we'll see discussed in the next passage between Jacob and Esau. But that's not what happens here. Abraham does not give his other sons any inheritance. Yes, he gives them some gifts. That will help them get started, but we're not to understand those gifts as any more comparable to a share of the inheritance. Because the inheritance he gives in the full to Isaac alone. The reason why Abraham did this is because God told him. Earlier in Genesis, Genesis 21, 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That was quoted in Romans 9 as well, as related to this whole idea of election. You see why it's fitting for us to be thinking about election today. It's not like I'm imposing this here. It's actually underneath this passage, is this whole idea of election. And you might remember, Romans 9 quoted that, but that was in the uh, back in Genesis 21. That was when Sarah demanded what? Abraham cast out Ishmael. Cast out Ishmael, cast out his mother Hagar. Cast him out of the family. Remember, Sarah cited the concern there in that passage about the inheritance. She said, I don't, we don't want, she said, she said, she didn't want any of the inheritance to be shared with Ishmael. She wanted it all to go to Isaac. And remember, Abraham, he didn't want to do that. But God revealed to him to listen to Sarah in this. And God explained the reason why. It was that quote, because of divine election. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God there confirmed his plan, even with Sarah's uh, pushing for it. He confirmed, God confirmed his divine plan according to divine election. He would fulfill his covenant promises through Isaac. Abraham here does some application. He rightly discerns this still applies with these new sons now through Keterah. Still, Isaac alone would be the promised seed through which God would form a special people in a special place. In other words, fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. So Abraham acts in faith, and by faith gives all his inheritance to Isaac and sends out all the other sons out of the home, away from the family. Again, this is very similar to what Sarah asked would happen to Ishmael and Hagar. You can't help but see some of Sarah's legacy sort of, of influence still here, but ultimately confirmed by what God had prophetically said about his election. Abraham here is heeding the prophetic word of God, and God told him through Isaac alone would be your seed 
realize. So then we see this election of Isaac confirmed in verse 11. Verse 11, we see God's activity. After Abraham dies, what does it say? God blessed Isaac. Then we're told about how Isaac settles at Beer Mahoy Roy, or Beer Mahoy, that's in the south. Uh, this little reference in verse 11 is to basically change our focus now. We have been focused on God's working through Abraham. Now that Abraham has died, the focus is going to change to have us focus on Isaac. And really, it's God's focus now here in the passage becomes on Isaac. We're going to see how God reiterates what he promised to Abraham. He's going to reiterate that to Isaac. And we have a new section on Isaac. It begins in verse 19. See there? These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. See that new section being started? That section is going to continue all the way to chapter 36. So you see God's focus now. He's drawing our attention now through Isaac. We're going to see through Isaac God continue to build his chosen people. But what is interesting, we'll find out that even with Isaac, not all of Isaac will be of Isaac. I'm quoting Romans there, basically. I'm alluding to Romans, right? It says, not all Israel is Israel, not all Isaac is Isaac. Not all Israel is Israel, not all Isaac is Isaac. What do I mean? Isaac can have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And God is going to choose Jacob over Esau. Through Jacob, Isaac's seed will be named. We'll study that more next time, but we see a little bit in our passage already today. Well, let's turn now to our third point and consider these other sons of Abraham who, who, who are not the chosen Isaac. And, and I want to do a little compare and contrast. I think by considering Isaac compared to the other brothers, we can learn more nuance when it comes to election and get a little more sense of God's plan being worked out. Isaac, yes, is specially elected to be the seed of promise. And we see that God passes over these other sons, not only of Keturah, but also of Ishmael. But let us then consider Ishmael first. Ishmael actually gets a whole section in Genesis. Did you catch that? Remember I told you the little section markers? These are the generations. Look at verse 6. Or not verse 6. Uh, verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael. He gets his own section. Do you notice how small it is? <laughs> it's actually just, just a few verses. And it's before it talks about Isaac's section, which is really long. That's already beginning to contrast. In Isaac versus Ishmael and God's importance and focus when it comes to the plan of redemption being worked out through Isaac's line. But as we compare and contrast, it's, it's helpful to think a little bit for a moment about Ishmael. Ishmael has 12 sons who each become a prince of a tribe of people. Uh, by the way, it's typically thought that Ishmael's descendants are a major root of the Arab people today. It says that they settled east of Egypt in the direction of Assyria. And we learn that Ishmael died at the rather ripe old age of 137 years. As we see this relatively brief account of his descendants, what we should recognize here, even though it's brief, 
we should recognize God's blessings upon them. Remember back in chapter 21, God promised Abraham this as well. God said to Abraham, yes, Isaac, I'm going to, going to build your seed and the covenant promises through Isaac. But nonetheless, God said, for your sake, Abraham, I'm going to make Ishmael into a great nation as well. And so we see a little bit of parallel between Isaac and Ishmael that's worthy to think about. Think about how Ishmael yields a 12-tribe people, even as Isaac would ultimately yield a 12-tribe people of Israel through his son Jacob. It mentions how Abraham is gathered to his people, so too Ishmael is gathered to his people. Ishmael was not annihilated at his death. Of course, the text doesn't tell us of the state of their afterlife in comparison, but he was not annihilated at death. The closing reference there in verse 18 says that he settled over against all his kinsmen. Reminds us back to the prophecy that God gave to Hagar about him back in Genesis 16. That was at that, at that well at Beer Lahoy Roy. And that prophecy there spoke of the way that Ishmael would have conflict with his descendants. His descendants uh, uh, would have conflict, um, that there would be this, this ongoing living amidst each other, conflicting with each other. And that seems to be what's hinted at here at the end of this Ishmael section. But nonetheless, it does remind us that this wasn't a surprise to God. God prophesied it. God has a plan working itself out. What I want us to recognize then, even though God would work his redemptive plans through Isaac, that does not mean that God somehow treated Ishmael badly. Indeed, Ishmael and his seed experienced many temporal blessings. They are allowed to grow and thrive in many ways. We see something similar with Keterah's sons. You have this list in verses 2 through 4 of all the peoples that come from uh, those sons. Really, uh, it seems these are ultimately nations that come from these sons. And we don't know about most of them, uh, much about them from, from genealogical records. But of course, we do know a decent bit about one of them, the descendants of Midian. They do feature quite a bit of biblical history. Midian is one of these descendants of the sons of Keterah. Just as God blessed Ishmael, Abraham blesses these sons of Keterah by giving them gifts. Yes, he separates them. He distinguishes them from Isaac. But realize, it's not like Abraham kicked them out of the house and left them for dead. That's not what's going on here. I believe we should recognize how Abraham shows concern for the sons of Keterah as sort of Similar to how we see God showing concern for Ishmael. And realize that God then is showing concern for the sons of Keterah as well. Initially through Abraham, but then from there on. How do these nations, these peoples grow up in a nation? Like, for example, Midian, that we see so much going on. Other than God providing for them in some temporal way. way that the Ishmaelites and the sons of Keter are treated with these temporal outward blessings 
Even though Isaac was the chosen seed of promise, that tells us something about election. That tells us some nuance about how we're to think about election. We need to handle this doctrine carefully. Let's slow down and do that then right now. God did not select Isaac over these other sons so as to have no concern for these other sons. We might mistakenly think that all God cares about here at this point is Isaac and his seed and, and that they alone are the chosen God and so therefore the rest must just be bidding their time until they end up in hell. That would not be a very fair reading of the text. Yes, Isaac is the seed. He's the child of promise. But what did God say would happen through that seed in Genesis 12? Through that seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Nuance, guys. Nuance here. Real important. Because that ultimately comes to fruition through Isaac's greater son, whose name is Jesus. And along the way, this dynamic is supposed to be pursued and lived out. God's plan was never simply or just about saving Isaac's physical seed. It's not really what it's ever been about. But it is to bring salvation to all the world. But think of how we see that dynamic there in these early chapters of Genesis. The same place I'm referencing in Genesis 12, what does God say about Abraham and the nations? Those who bless Abraham will be blessed. Those who curse Abraham will be cursed. Now that applies to Isaac. Those who bless Isaac will be blessed. Those who curse Isaac will be cursed. Who do you think he's talking about with the other nations? How will they respond to Isaac and this chosen line? So when talking about election and reprobation, we should understand that ultimately there's an individual underlying component behind all of this. Elect humans, individuals are the ones predestined to salvation. Reprobate humans, individuals have been predestined to damnation. It's not fundamentally about genealogical descent so that you can say, I got enough blood of Israel in me, therefore I'm saved. That's not the way it works. Otherwise, Isaac's son Esau wouldn't end up excluded from the covenant. There's your proof. It was just about you had blood of Abraham, right? Or blood of Isaac. Esau wouldn't have been excluded. But not all Israel are truly Israel. The way the Bible teaches us, we can use the terminology of, of the chosen people and apply it to Isaac's descendants, but that never meant that every single descendant of Isaac was truly elect, some would show themselves to actually be reprobate, and they'd be cut off from Israel. Likewise, some of the nations would show themselves to, to be actually elect, some of the people of the nations, and they would be incorporated into Israel. It was God's plan all along right here from Genesis 12 onward, to use Isaac's house through Jacob as that, exter that external group through which salvation would be offered to all the families of the earth. And that fact is hinted here, I think, when Isaac settles in Beer Lahai Roy. 
Why, why do I say that? Remember that location, the year of the high war, That was the nation, or excuse me, that was the location that God appeared to Ishmael's mother when she was at first run away. And the whole point of that naming of the location and what God did there was God to tell her this, and really her and her son Ishmael, God sees, God hears. God sees, God hears. That was the naming of that, was that uh, it's a reference how God sees and hears her. And by extension, Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. Ishmael and his people were not cast off so that they had no hope of salvation. That's my, my point I'm trying to bring to you. It's rather that they needed to find their salvation in Isaac. What do I mean? I mean in Isaac and the seed of Isaac in Jesus. Right? So this is this is where we're thinking in the dynamics there early on. Isaac's here. Isaac is there at Bir Lahai Roy. If you're Ishmael and company, Ishmael and nations coming out of him, what should Bir Lahai Roy tell you? There's a God who sees and hears. And guess who happens to be at that place? No, of the God who sees and hears, Isaac. Those who bless Isaac will be blessed. Those who curse Isaac will be cursed. The separation of Isaac from the other sons was never meant to be absolute in the sense of eternal destinies. We recognize, even here, Isaac and Ishmael come together to bury Abraham. As Isaac goes to this spot that's really a store for Ishmael, Will Ishmael come to that spot and bless Isaac and want to be in good relation to the seed of promise? Will he? Because those who bless Abraham and Isaac will be blessed. Those who curse him will be cursed. You're supposed to come in peace to find blessing in Isaac and ultimately Isaac's seed. Now think about this going forward. How does this play out? Sadly, too often the future generations of Ishmael and the sons of Keturah they do not seek blessing through the seed of Isaac. They curse the seed of Isaac in several examples. And by the way, it's really interesting, uh, as you keep going on in history in the Bible, you see that one of these sons of Keturah, the Midianites, somehow get closely connected with the Ishmaelites. There's points where they're referenced together, almost like they're one people, and what speculation is that they intermarried at some point. And yet, their both names were still recognized that Ishmaelites and Midianites were coming together. And we see, sadly, times where those Ishmael Midianites afflict the sons of Israel. For example, in the wilderness wandering, they try to get Balaam to curse Israel. Or during the time of Judges, they afflict Israel. That's when God had raised up Gideon to deliver over the Ishmaelite Midianites. But there are opposite examples, too. Remember, Moses, he marries a Midianite uh, daughter, right? Jethro is a Midianite priest, and, and Jethro shows blessing to Abraham. You read the text, Jethro eventually realizes the God of Moses is the one true God, and Moses invites him to come along in the promised land. So there's nuance we're supposed to understand here. God never intended these other nations to think 
that they were without any chance of hope. That they were just cast off for reprobation. Acts 14, 17 confirms this for us. There it says, God gave different temporal blessings upon the nations so they could recognize God. So they could recognize the God who sees and hears. How can we not read Acts 14? Back into today's passage, see the temporal blessings God gave upon Ishmael and, and the Midianites and, and, and realize that calls them to seek God. Likewise, Acts 17, 27 spoke of how God's plans were for all the nations to seek him. So God chose to use Isaac to bring forth the blessings of Jesus, not just for his physical descendants, but for all the nations. God's plans always intended salvation through his chosen people to be held out to all the world. It's an interesting way God chose to do it, but this is here, cover to cover in the Bible. And so this continues today the church, as we call the church of Jesus Christ, it's just, we can call it Israel as well. It's the true Israel. There were a lot of Israelites when Jesus came as king of the Israelites who rejected their king and they were cut off. And there were a lot of Gentiles that came in at the time. But the church of Jesus Christ is this ongoing chosen line of promise. Church then has this job to hold out salvation through Jesus to the nations so that all the nations can find blessing in that seed of Isaac Jesus. So, just thinking of a specific application then today, think of what Abraham could do with some of the information he had. He had some very special information, he knew that Isaac was the elect son over his other sons. So what did he do with that information? Because he knew that. He gave Isaac all the inheritance. He just gave good gifts to the rest. Very practical things for Abraham to do because he knew what he knew. Realize, we today do not have any particular revelation that tells us this person is elect and that person isn't. We don't have that specific knowledge, so we can't do something like Abraham did in that regard. But God has revealed to us that the church is the elect people of God. Yes, the church outwardly is an imperfect mixed body, but the church is the chosen instrument to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Through Isaac, your seed will be named. Through the church of Jesus Christ, your seed will be named. This we know. This has been revealed to us. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. So that's some information we can act on. We don't know individual states of election, but we know the church is the chosen instrument of God to bring salvation to the world. We can't operate on what we don't know, so let's operate on what we do know. Let us then make application to the church and its ministry. Let us value the church. Let us support the church. 
Let us labor in the church. Let us pray for the church. Let us seek its peace, purity, and unity. And I don't think our congregational meeting influenced this application, but I think providentially glad the congregational meeting appeared today. What a good reminder the church and its ministry and to be poured into it. You know, there's an old Latin phrase that the Roman Catholics have perverted, but it's a good, original, originally intended a good sentiment. I'll give you the Latin. Extra ecclesium nulla salus. Extra ecclesium nulla salus means outside the church there is no salvation. You wouldn't go to Ishmael to get saved. You go to Isaac to get saved. You don't go to Hindus to be saved or Buddhists to be saved. You go to the Church of Jesus Christ where you're introduced to Jesus and the gospel. It's through the church ordinarily that people are saved. The church is used to gather the elect from the nations through its gospel preaching. Let us be thankful then to be counted among the number of God's people. Lord God, we thank you for your church particularly for our congregation here of your visible church. What a blessing to have a passage like this before our annual congregational meeting. May we indeed value that you have us here as a congregation in this community. Would you pray, Lord, grow our ministry. And may we each be good stewards of it. May you be exalted through our ministry here. May your Holy Spirit work your power in our midst and through our labors. To you, O Lord, God, and Lord, we praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.